Welcome to the Why They Are So Angry podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Carol Francois, a proud baby boomer with over 30 years experience as an educator and learning leader. And I'm Courtney Square, your resident first generation millennial. Join us as we present an unvarnished look at systemic racism in America throughout history and up to modern times. We invite you to pull up a chair, put in your earbuds, and allow us to enlighten, educate, and explore the real reasons why Black African Americans are so angry. Because until you know the whole history, it isn't American history at all. You know what, Courtney? From the earliest times of the United States history, religious leaders have led the struggle for liberation and racial justice for Black African Americans. They've done that by leading civil rights and social justice efforts to fight systemic racism in this country. That's right, Aunt Carol. A lot of men and women of the cloth consider fighting for social justice as their spiritual calling. It puts them right in step with many biblical characters, heroes, stories, and teachings from both the Old and New Testaments. Now, for much of the country's history, though, Courtney, enslavers actually use religion to subjugate the enslaved. They believe that Christian teaching with its message that said slaves would get their reward in the afterlife would make them, uh, those enslaved people, accept their condition as slaves. Hmm. Uh, consequently, there were many efforts to wipe out native tribal religions and insert Christianity instead. For example, in the South, Anglican ministers sponsored by the Society for the Propagation of the Gospel, say that five times fast, <laughs> tried to teach enslaved people Christianity by rote memorization. Uh, but, you know, that method didn't work out so well. In the 1830s and 40s, Southern churchmen undertook an active campaign to persuade plantation owners that slaves must be brought into the Christian fold. Now, because plantations were located far from churches, this meant that the church had to be carried to the plantation. So denominational missionary societies and associations started plantation missions. But missionaries recognized that Christianity would not appeal to all enslaved people. In fact, one missionary warned other missionaries by saying this, he who carries the gospel to them, meaning the enslaved, discovers deism, skepticism, universalism, all the strong objections against the truth of God, objections which he may perhaps have considered peculiar only to the cultivated minds of critics and philosophers. So basically that missionary thought that only uh, white people who were supposedly more uh, educated would be skeptical of Christianity, but um, the, the enslaved people were too. Now, they were surprised to find that they were intellectually capable of being skeptical of Christianity. Now, some white owners allow the enslaved to worship in white churches with them. But of course, they were segregated at the back of the building or in the balconies where they might hear a special sermon from white preachers. But these sermons, again, tended to, just, uh, to stress obedience and duty and the message of the Apostle Paul, slaves, Obey your masters. 
Now, I've read in Carol that both Methodist and Baptist religious leaders made serious efforts to convert enslaved Africans to Christianity. The Methodists even licensed Black men to preach. Black ministers turned things around, though, and began to preach their to their own people about stories, people, and events depicted in the Old and New Testaments as a way to preach out against slavery and even encourage slaves to run away and revolt. Now, of course, the story that had the biggest impact on these congregations was the story of Exodus that tells about the Israelites who were in bondage and the way they gain their freedom through a powerful God who set them free. Yes, yes, yes. That Exodus story was powerful. So teaching the Old Testament actually was frowned upon by the Southern planters since it could inspire a thirst for independence. The enslavers preferred the love thy neighbor teachings of the New Testament. And they certainly didn't like that passage about an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. I'm so, sure they didn't. <laughs> no, no, no. It might have been their eye and their tooth. Now, enslaved preachers had to be careful. Basically, the independence of black churches was curbed by law and by the white Southern fear of slave uprisings and abolition. For example, in the 1780s, after uh, a black African-American, Andrew Bryan began preaching to a small group of slaves in Savannah, Georgia, white citizens had Bryan arrested and whipped. They feared that organized churches could foment slave uh, revolt, something I think you're going to touch on a little later on. I will, but let's not get ahead of ourselves, Aunt Carol. Now, things were a little bit different up north, right? Since surprisingly, that's where many Black African Americans worshipped and established predominantly white congregations. That's right. That is exactly right. By the... Uh, 18th century, though, Blacks started breaking away and congregating in self-help and benevolent associations called African societies. These were quasi-religious organizations, many of which became independent churches later. In 1787, for example, the most famous of these was created by Richard Allen and Absalom Jones, who organized the Free African Society of Philadelphia. This later evolved into two church congregations, the Bethel Church, the Mother Church of the African Methodist Episcopal, also known as the AME denomination, and the St. Thomas Episcopal Church, which remained affiliated with a white Episcopal denomination. Now, Allen resisted and resented the fact that Black African-American worshipers, though they could worship in the same building as whites, were segregated in the church and restricted to certain worship and prayer times. He broke away, and that's exactly why he broke away. And he was elected the first bishop of the AME Church in 1816. Allen then focused on organizing a denomination where free Black white people could worship without racial oppression and enslaved people could find a measure of dignity. Now, Mary Sawyer, a historian, says that by 1810, the churches uh, that he was suggest uh, he was sponsoring and others were promoting, uh, they grew exponentially into 15 African churches representing four denominations in 10 cities from South Carolina to Massachusetts. In fact, 
Emmanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church, often referred to as Mother Emmanuel, is one of those churches in Charleston, South Carolina. Sadly, it's also the site of one of the most heinous massacres of Black African Americans, where nine worshipers were gunned down during prayer service. This church will play a big part in the story you're going to share. But again, I'm getting ahead of things. Yes, you are, Aunt Carol, but you're right. That massacre was insidious. And you're also right. Like you said, it's going to come up again in our story today. Now, not only did Bishop Richard Allen found churches, you could say he started the social justice movement in the Black African-American church because he also worked to upgrade the social status of the Black community by organizing Sabbath schools to teach literacy and promoted national organizations to develop political strategies. Ahead of his time. Now, prior to the Civil War, the Black church also became uh, very active in the abolitionist movement. Importantly, in the North, Black African-American ministers and free people joined white abolitionists in organizing the Underground Railroad. This, of course, you know, uh, Courtney, was that network of homes and hideouts established to, to uh, help the enslaved escape bondage and make their way to freedom. Some Black ministers uh, spoke out against slavery and warned that any nation that condoned slavery would suffer divine punishment. Now, an abolitionist we don't hear much about is a man by the name of David Walker. He wrote a pamphlet titled Appeal to the Colored Citizens of the World. Yep. He was an important vo voice, Courtney, because Walker urged slaves to resort to violence if necessary. He also warned of that divine punishment I mentioned earlier. He said, quote, God rules in the armies of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. His ears continually open to the tears and groans of his oppressed people. Now, that was pretty heady and controversial stuff at the time. Oh, yeah. And that sounds a lot like uh, what Nat Turner, who led a slave revolt, was preaching. Uh, he led that revolt at Harper's Ferry. You're right about Nat Turner, Courtney. Historian Patrick Breen wrote this in Smithsonian Magazine, quote, Turner readily placed his revolt in a biblical context, comparing himself at some times to the Old Testament prophets. At another point, he compared himself to Jesus Christ. He saw his rebellion as the work of God. Now, women were also a part of the religious argument against slavery. Sojourner Truth and Jarna Lee both said they were spurred to action after God revealed himself to them personally. Lee's anti-slavery preaching is an early example of the important role that Black religious female leaders would have in the 20th century civil rights struggle. Yep, Courtney, Jarena Lee was one of those women, much like some that we'll be talking about later, who was at the forefront of a struggle for Black African Americans. And it seems that the church has historically been at the forefront of fighting for social justice. And because of that, I think you have a story about a religious leader who resisted slavery in the most daring way. Daring is just the half of it, Aunt Carol. I'm going to tell our listeners about the remarkable and divinely inspired man named Denmark Vesey. He used religious teachings to organize one of the most famous revolts by enslaved people. 
1771, 14-year-old Denmark Vesey was transported from St. Thomas to Cape Francais by slave trader Captain Joseph Vesey. Denmark accompanied Captain Vesey on his trading voyages until the captain retired in Charleston, South Carolina. Now, in 1799, Vesey bought his own freedom for $600. Sadly, he was unable to purchase his wife and children, and some say this motivated his crusade to destroy the institution of slavery. Now, as we talked about earlier, because they feared slave uprisings, white Charlestonians constantly uh, monitored the African church, disrupting services, arresting and arresting members. Now, in 1815, whites in Charleston discovered that Black Methodists had been secretly pooling money to buy freedom for enslaved congregants. So they moved to restrict Black autonomy. Then in an outrageous affront to the enslaved, they planned to construct a hearse house basically a parking lot for hearses on top of a black burial ground. Um, How rude. That is just low. Rude and disrespectful. Now, the Blacks in Charleston had had enough. That was the final insult. Over 4,000 Black members who attended the segregated white churches left. They left those churches in a form of protest and formed the African Methodist Episcopal Church or AME. Now Denmark followed them, leaving the segregated Second Presbyterian Church where slaves were taught to be subservient to plantation owners. In the new AME church, Vesey found freedom to preach his beliefs. Vesey joined the newly formed African Methodist Episcopal Church in 1817 and became a class leader. So kind of like a Sunday school teacher Mm -hmm. preaching small groups in his home during the week. So like Bible study as well. So soon an angry Vesey began preaching from the Old Testament back to that story in Exodus. He taught his followers a radical new liberation theology that they were the new Israelites and the chosen people and that God would punish their enslavers with death. At almost every meeting, Vesey or one of his comrades read from the Bible how the children of Israel were delivered out of Egypt and bondage. Some people even say that Vesey and his followers and congregants were the inspiration for the ageless Black song of faith and struggle, Go Down Moses. And another incident, no doubt, that disturbed Vesey to his core was in 1818. White authorities disrupted an AME service attended by free Black ministers from Philadelphia and arrested 140 people. Now, Vesey considered just leaving Charleston and going back to Africa, but he decided to stay. Now, with this new urgency, he preached that freedom for slaves would be realized, and he began to plot a rebellion. Wow, this sounds serious. Very, very serious. Now, Vesey's chief lieutenant was an East African priest by the name of Gullah Jack. At secret nighttime meetings, Gullah Jack would lead the men in prayer, songs, ritual meals, 
starting to transform them from just powerless slaves to rebels with a common purpose and a cause. Now, he prescribed them a special diet and gave them crab claw ambulance to protect them in battle. Through Jack, Vessie was able to reach many more recruits. Now, Vessie's theology of liberation, combined with Gullah Jack's African mysticism, inspired potential participants and word of this rebellion grew. Now, once he felt he had enough men to join the cause, the plan began to take shape. Along with Jack, Vessie set July 14th as the date of the revolt. His goal was for the men from Charleston and surrounding plantations to seize Charleston's arsenals and guard houses. They were to kill the governor, set fire to the city, and kill every white man they saw. Whoa, Courtney, this is high drama. I am just holding my breath to hear what happened with this plot. Well, I know from history what happened, but it's still exciting. Let's take a quick break, then come back for the outcome. Want to learn more about systemic racism? Or maybe you want to leave us a comment, rate our show, subscribe, get lots of swag, or reach out to us on social media. Well, you can. Go to our website, www.podpage.com, Why Are They So Angry? And connect with Courtney and me. You can even sign up to take our course, Systemic Racism, See It, Say It, Confront It. All that waiting for you at www.podpage.com. Why are they so angry? See you there. All right, Courtney, bring us back to the Denmark Vesey revolt. What happened? Well, when we left uh, off before the break, Vesey had been incensed and enraged by a raid that had happened on an African church in Philadelphia in 1818. So he started to plan a revolt and he chose July 14th for it to take place. Now, Vesey, along with his partner, as you remember before the break, Gullah Jack, a church member and an Angolan priest, as well as a healer, started to recruit Native Africans from surrounding plantations to join the rebellion. Now, as a conjurer who could control the supernatural world, Jack was very respected among the slaves working on the Charleston plantations. Well, Courtney, I can't imagine everybody around on those plantations went along with this plan. Was Did the word get out? Was there a problem of some sort? Well, you're right. Not everyone subscribed to the Denmark Vesey, you know, rebel with, with a cause uh, plan. A gentleman by the name of George Wilson was also a class leader in the AME church, but his doctrine was a little bit different. He followed the Christian doctrine of love thy neighbor, and he was devoted to his master. Now, a fellow slave named Rolla Bennett told Wilson about the upcoming rebellion, and George pleaded with him, please just let it alone. Don't join that rebellion. Oh boy, this doesn't sound good. Mm. (laughs) Now, five sleepless nights later, Wilson unfortunately told his master about the plot confirming the confession of another man and and that led to the arrest and execution 
of Rolla Bennett and his conspirators. Charleston authorities began arresting leaders and Vesey was captured. He and his conspirators conspirators were brought to trial. Now, despite torture and threat of execution, the men refused to give up the other followers. Now, on July 2nd, Denmark Vesey and five other men were hung. Gullah Jack was executed several days later with a total number of executions reaching 35 by August 9th that year. George Wilson, who revealed the plot to the slaveholders, met a very surprising end. Although he was granted his freedom as a reward for telling on the rebellion, Wilson eventually lost his sanity and committed suicide. Mm, wow, what a, what a way to go. Now, in the aftermath of the Vesey Rebellion, the African church was burned down and authorities passed a series of laws further restricting the rights of Charleston slaves. Vesey became a martyr for African-Americans and a symbol for the abolitionist movement. After the executions of Denmark Vesey and the 34 others, Charleston authorities exiled the African church leaders and razed the building. Although devastated by the destruction of their church, Black Charlestonians continued to honor Vesey's revolutionary Old Testament theology in secret. For abolitionists such as David Walker and Frederick Douglass, Vesey became a, became a symbol of resistance and an inspiration in their own writings. On the other hand, white Charlestonians responded by increasing the efforts to convert slaves to the love thy neighbor doctrine found in the New Testament and further passing legislations to restrict the rights of slaves. Wow. Courtney, the Denmark Vesey story and the role of the Black African-American church, both during and after the Civil War, it just provided that infrastructure and the moral resilience leading up to the civil rights movement. Had it not been for people like Denmark Vesey and the sacrifice he and the other rebellious people uh, made, um, perhaps we wouldn't have a resistance to look to as the history. So more than 100 years, for more than 100 years, Blacks had struggled against racial inequality, racial violence, and social injustice. And it started well back in the 1800s and even earlier with people like Vesey. And it culminated in the 1950s when some Black African-American religious leaders took up the cause. Now, in Montgomery, Alabama, you will recall we talked about this, ministers and lay leaders carefully planned and executed the boycott of the Montgomery buses, and they formed the Montgomery Improvement Association and chose as their spokesman the newly appointed 26-year-old minister of the Dexter Avenue Baptist Church, Martin Luther King Jr. So there we have it, another minister at the forefront of change. Now, two, year, two years later, King and other Black ministers formed the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. In essence, religious leaders over and over and over stepped up to the forefront of, of this movement. Ralph Abernathy, Andrew Young, James Lawson, Wyatt Walker, Ella Baker, all of them stood up and became the civil rights movement. Now, churches played a pivotal role in protest 
and it was in their crowded basements and cramped offices that plans were made. Much like, remember, we, we talked about those, uh, those members of the AME Church in Charleston who secretly plotted to buy the freedom of some of their congregants. These kinds of, of, of um, secret plans and public marches and, and protestations made a difference. Now, those churches and their members all across the South paid an awful cost. So just like Denmark Vesey and the original members of the Mother Emanuel Church, uh, during the Civil Rights Movement, it was no different. Now, most Americans learn in history about the September 15th bombing in 1963 of the 16th Street Church in Birmingham, Alabama, when Ku Klux Klan terrorists killed four little girls. Bombings, lynchings, terroristic threats were ongoing daily throughout the South, and churches and pastors were often targets. That's right, Courtney. That type of terror against Black African-American churches didn't end with the 1950s, though. For example, from 1994 to 1996, church bombings and arsons spiked across the Southeast. In South Carolina alone, Black churches that suffered probably arson attacks included Mount Zion, Macedonia Baptist, St. Paul Baptist, uh, just all over the South bombings at one after the other. One member of Congress likened fire bombings in those years to the return of a biblical plague. Now, the recent, most recent burning of a Black church to make national headlines was not that long ago. In 2009 in Massachusetts, the day Barack Obama was inaugurated as the first Black president, a white man was later convicted in what prosecutors called a racially motivated arson attack. So Churches have been seen as the target because churches became the center of movements against systemic racism. And that's so sad because people go to church to find solace and peace. But I guess the past is not the past, Aunt Carol. Since the history of attacking Black African-American churches and church members goes all the way back to the Denmark Vesey days. Now, few can forget the Charleston church killings that were a mass shooting on June 17th, 2015, right in Charleston, South Carolina, where nine African-Americans were killed during a Bible study at the historic Emmanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church. Among the people killed were the senior pastor and state senator, Clementa C. Pickney. This church is one of the oldest Black churches in the United States and has a long, long history for being the center for organizing events which were related to civil rights. On another note, though, isn't it true that not all churches joined the civil rights movement back in the 50s? Well, you're right, Courtney. In spite of the violence against churches and pastors and ministers, uh, not every church um, got involved with the civil rights movement. As historian Barbara Savage wrote, most pastors and congregations were reluctant to defy the status quo. For example, there's a pastor named J.H. Jackson, who's the conservative member of the old line National Baptist Convention and pastor of Chicago's Olivet Baptist Church, who had been staunchly opposed to Dr. King and his tactics. Now, tensions grew so much between those two that there was finally a split 
in the National Baptist Convention USA, which was the largest black uh, denomination, when King and others broke off to form the Progressive Baptist Convention. Now, today, the status and role of the black church in the post-civil rights era has been the subject of lively debate among African-American scholars. Some argue that the black church is dead and that it has lost its prophetic and progressive voice and its capacity to mobilize for reform on the national stage as they once did in the 50s and 60s. Now, others argue that the church is very much alive and they point to uh, a, a, a study by the Pew Religious Landscape Survey in 2008 that shows that African-Americans are more likely than any other ethnic or racial group to report a formal religious affiliation. Even those who count themselves unaffiliated describe themselves as religiously affiliated. So I grew up in church. <laughs> yeah, basically. <laughs> well, in Carol, the church, like all social organizations, is changing. There are a lot of competing ideas about what it ought to be. Some think the church should carry forward the prophetic imperative spirit of the civil rights movement and be a collective and have a collective mandate for social change. Now, others think it should focus on personal prosperity and individual economic advancement. For example, some influential Black ministers and televangelists have promoted what's called a prosperity gospel and the message that God wants you to be rich and that wealth is a sign of divine favor. Now, these leaders are often linked with a highly conservative evangelical movements that back candidates like uh, Donald Trump. Yes, yes. The prosperity gospel message definitely isn't the message of uh, the civil rights movement, nor is it the message of more progressive churches today like Trinity Church in Chicago, where former senior pastor and firebrand Jeremiah Wright stressed pride in African identity and a spouse like Denmark Vesey, a brand of Black liberation theology. Trinity, which is still very active uh, politically, describes itself as, quote, unapologetically Christian, unashamedly black. I now, like all that. the church, <laughs> I know, I love that slogan. I love it. Now, although the church has a new pastor, Trinity continued to be politically active while offering a wide range of social services, including meals for the homeless, housing for the elderly, childcare programs, and ministries for children with AIDS uh, and HIV infection and prison inmates. So they combine both social activ activism as well as community outreach. And that's a, that's a great way to do things. Now, Dr. Wright speaks for some pastors, but just like Dr. King back during the civil rights movement, Black African-American churches today are not unified when it comes to fighting systemic racism. Some prefer to stay on the sidelines or are concerned about, and are concerned about uh, attracting a violent backlash or they prefer to be more gradualist in their approach to social justice. You're right, Courtney, you're right. You've described what I call the traditionalist, one of whom is Bishop Charles Blake, who became the pastor of West Angeles in 1969 when there were only about 50 members. And Dr. King's message of nonviolence resonated with him. Today, that church has a congregation of about 25,000 members and it includes luminaries like Denzel Washington, Magic Johnson, Angela Bassett, and her 
and her husband, Courtney B. Vance. Now, Bishop Blake's church has developed 400 units of affordable housing. It has ministries that provide counseling, help the homeless and ex-convicts. They assist with Black-owned businesses and tutor uh, students. And many folks have credited him with transforming a once struggling corridor in the Crenshaw neighborhood uh, into a vibrant community. And he's laid out a plan for churches nationwide to do the same in their own communities. But Bishop Blake tends to avoid politics in church. Even though there's great community outreach, he does not speak politics from the pulpit. Now, Melina Abdullah, a professor of Pan-African Studies at California State University and a Black Lives Matter organizer, lauds Bishop Blake's community work. But she also said she wished that he would use his power influence more to advocate for systemic change. Well, I hear there is a pastor who seems to embody the nature of Dr. King's social justice instincts. That would be Dr. William Barber. Yes, Courtney, you're right. He is pretty much the polar opposite to the last pastor we just described. Dr. Barber, as president of the North Carolina NAACP and pastor of a small Disciples of Christ Church in Goldsboro, he began um, his work by staging Moral Monday protests in Raleigh in 2013. Uh, and those protests were organized to oppose voting rights restrictions, sounds familiar, and other policies of the Republican-led state government. Now, the demonstrations attracted thousands of participants and helped defeat the governor in 2016. Now, recently he branched out along with the Reverend Tracy Blackman, a well-known supporter of the Black Lives Matter movement and clergy members uh, in her church. Dr. Barber has trained thousands of activists in 32 states in an effort that continues to get people behind efforts to for voter registration and other efforts to stamp out systemic racism. So the spirit of Dr. King, as well as Denmark Vesey, lives on through Dr. Barber. Now, Reverend Barber is very outspoken. In an interview, he once said, there is not some separation between Jesus and justice. To be a Christian is to be concerned with what's going on in the world. That's right. And one of his comrades, as I mentioned earlier, Reverend Tracy Blackman, is very much involved in what's going on in the world. She's uh, an executive with United Church of Christ uh, in near Ferguson, Missouri. And she is um, one of those ministers who sees the work that many churches perform, like feeding and housing the poor, as, as important, but it is distinct from the advocacy that Black Lives Matter and other organizations are doing. She said, I'm talking about the organized counter movement that has as its end goal, the changing of systems and the dismantling of structures. And uh, she said this, she was one of the, the frontline activists in the wake of the 2014 killing of Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri. Uh, even though she, her church does all of that community outreach, she is uh, also concerned about the systemic racism in, in communities across this country. She said, I'm talking about the organized counter movement that has as its end goal, the changing of systems and the dismantling of structures. In other words, uh, Tracy Blackman, 
wants to stamp out systemic racism, not just do community outreach. And she started this work as a frontline activist in the wake of the 2014 killing of Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri. Now, Aunt Carol, I hear a female pastor in your hometown of Dallas, Texas, is making a mark in the social justice arena. Friendship West, Danielle Ayers, said that Black churches like hers follow in the prophetic tradition that puts this kind of activism as its central mission. Now, tracing a lineage back to the founding of Black churches, she said that the church not only attends to the spiritual development of individuals, but is also called upon to help improve the material conditions of the community. That's what makes the Black church the Black church, she said. That's why Black folks are still here. It was organized as a protest movement against enslavement, and in each era, we are always organizing through the church. You're right, Courtney. I'm very familiar with the work that that church and this minister has been doing. Uh, in particular, she and the church formed a coalition that was successful in reining in payday loan companies that prey on uh, people of color and particularly the Black African American community. She helped to um, spearhead the passage of two ordinances, one in um, May 2011 and another a month later, that would limit how payday lenders can cluster neighborhoods, make loan terms more manageable, and cap loan amounts to what people can reasonably afford. Now, it sounds like one way to make real change is to form coalitions of churches and community groups like Dr. Ayers did. Yes, it is. And a successful example of that coalition building is the Amos Project. It's a federation of, co of congregations in greater Cincinnati dedicated to promoting justice and improving the quality of life for all residents. Amos develops the leadership skills for low-income and working families to be active in public life. Now, the Reverend Troy Jackson, who's the executive director of the Amos Project, says, quote, we're in a real battle for the soul of faith, of Christianity of this nation. The Amos Project sounds like the kind of effort millennials and Gen Z would totally support. It reaches out to Blacks, Latinos, women, uh, gays, and the queer community, and the new wave of ca Catholic activists all working together. I also understand they include a large contingent of Jews, Muslims, Sikhs, Hindus and Buddhists in some cities. It's a reflection of the country's religious diversity. Yeah, yes it is, Courtney. Clearly the Amos Project has expanded the social justice tent by inviting any disenfranchised group to get involved. Clearly, we can see how the groundwork for their efforts is inspired by the history of the Black African American church and the um, insurgency of Denmark Vesey. So on that note, we'll close with comments from Professor Jonathan Walton, who said, for more than 300 years, the Black church in America has provided a safe haven for Black Christians in a nation shadowed by the legacy of slavery and a society that remains defined by race and class. Inspired by the story of Exodus, African-Americans think out, pray out, and shout out their anger and aspirations, free from the unstated yet powerful constraints that govern dialogue with the larger white society. In the pulpit and the pews, 
in choir lofts and Sunday schools, the Black church continues to offer affirmation and dignity to people still searching for equality and justice, still willing to reach out for a more inclusive embracing tomorrow. Those are beautiful words. And as the daughter of a, of a pastor, I'm so proud that my dad is also a part of that legacy of the Black church as well as our family. Uh, we have a large legacy in the Black church as well. Now, listeners, if you miss us or want to reach out to us on social media, please visit the website www.podpage.com. Why are they so angry? That brings today's episode to a close. We hope you join us next time when we continue providing the answer to the question, why are they so angry? As always, we hope you learn something so you can see it, say it, and confront it.